Comerica Park food employee is fired after spitting in food. Uh, yeah, he, I guess, has been working there for like three years, and he was just caught by a, uh, his, one of his colleagues. And his colleague was suspended for sharing the video on, uh, I guess, social media. And the gentleman who um, has, has been, the, the offender, uh, was fired. And all the food was destroyed, and the actual location was closed temporarily until they can obviously sanitize the, the place. Uh, he, he got, um, I guess, a misdemeanor and a felony count for food law violations. Really, really interesting stuff. Sad. I don't like this to hear about this kind of thing because I guess this gentleman was working there for like three years, and who knows how many, you know, pizzas he was spitting into before he'd put, the, like, the the sauce over it. I mean, it's just really disgusting stuff, man. So <laughs> <laughs> welcome to the Radicards podcast and Radicards.com. I'm your host, Patrick Greeno. Ryan Daly's joining us to talk about uh, this agenda today, which is going to be interesting. We're going to be talking about, uh, uh, I don't know, just a miscellaneous hodgepodge of stuff within the hobby and um, I guess forgotten player profile. We'll get straight into it here. Ryan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, man. Uh, so let's talk about this grading and resale values. You know, when does it matter and when doesn't it matter, right? So, you know, I, I, I've probably discussed this in some previous podcast, maybe even a blog post, uh, but it's something I like to touch upon some, from time to time because I think that some of us as sellers feel that grading always helps resale. And, you know, there there might be an argument for for I think a good portion of that, but it's not always the case. So t- let's take for example a card that you know is so rare we might not see one in an entire lifetime. Let's just say, and when it does surface, does it really matter that it's graded? I mean, honestly, it's like mm. grades like out of pristine, it'd be just ten, right? Sure. Like, would it make you want the card any more that it's graded, or just the fact that you finally saw the dang card that you like? I don't care that it's graded. I just want the dang card. Yeah, if it's that rare. I think in terms of like vintage pieces, um, the grading, regardless of the number that you get back, just helps confirm authenticity right. at the very least. Yeah. So, you know, Mickey Mantle cards in twos and threes obviously do very well. Sure. And, um, but, you know, it has to be a really special card to just sort of look past whatever grade you might mm-hmm. have. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean... I don't necessarily think it think it helps with uh, resale value across the board, but a lot of people do think that. People ship their cards off to BGS and PSA all the time, thinking they'll get to flip these cards when really it might not really matter. Yeah, you know, I mean, look, as a collector of, well, this being my thirtieth year in the hobby, um, there are cards that, you know. Only just recently, I finally saw an example of a card I've been looking for for a long, long time. That it was graded a BGS 10. It was the uh, 96 Select Certified Mirror Gold Pastime Power Frank Thomas. And we'll get to talking more about these auctions later in this podcast. But this particular card, it was graded BGS 10, and I'm like, I, I don't, I don't care that it's graded mm-hmm. at all, and I really don't care that it graded out of pristine. I, I just, even if it graded out an eight, I still wouldn't care. I'd still try to get the card. Granted, in this example, it's bad timing for me, so I just was an observer. I just watched the auctions. But if, had I been in the, the 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 participation bin for this particular auction, I would have bid 
aggressive regardless of the fact that it was graded. I, I just, honestly, I look at the card, not the grade. Mm -hmm. And so with something like that, don't care. Now, if you go back to like the 80s when they produced stuff in the billions of copies, yeah, you can have you can have a little bit more discretion and you're going to be choosy and picky because there's so many copies out there. And in that, in that case, I have no reason, you know, to go after anything other than a Gem Mint 10 example, PSA, let's say, because sure. there's so many examples out there. And even in 10s, I can look for the best looking 10, the most centered you know, I, I can have even have choosy and uh, discretion even in, in, in tens alone because there's so many copies printed and, and graded tens. So mm -hmm. in that situation, grading does matter. But so I guess there's a there's a relationship between, uh, uh, you know, scarcity and uh, grading relevance. You know, the scarcer the card is, the less relevant grading becomes, uh, the more abundant uh, the card is in in the market, the more significant grading becomes, and so yeah. those are. I mean, those are situations that I think that a lot of us can appreciate. But I think it, it comes down to if this card is so rare, why would I send it in to have it graded? But to your point, it does help for authentication. Yeah, that's the only thing I can really think of, and I, I have a few <clears throat> PSA tens from from the eighties and, and early nineties. Yeah, of cards that are. <clears throat> like you said, printed, you know, just in the billions. Um, but, you know, they're, they're key rookie cards. They're significant cards historically. So right. a, a PSA 10 is, is always good to have um, in that sort of mass production era. Totally. Um, I, sort of, I have an interesting dilemma I'm dealing with right now. I have a 2010 Mike Trout Pro Debut Blue Parallel. Number okay. 259. Yeah. It's got some rough edges. I know it's not going to come back a strong grade. And this isn't a card I'm trying to flip. Sure. But I think just for posterity and for my own collecting sort of OCD-ness, I kind of want to get it slabbed. Well, is, is that, think? is, so you, is that, I thought you had already sent that one in. I have a, I have the same card, I have the base card that was autographed. So I sent that in for authenticity. Ah. So now I have the blue raw okay. sitting and I'm thinking about sending that in soon. Yeah, I mean, there's no wrong answer here. It's just whatever you think is, you know, what, how you feel most comfortable. And those blue parallels, the blue goes to the edge, so you're gonna have, a, you know, a susceptible yeah. to chipping and this kind of thing. So, yep. pretty normal stuff. Mm -hmm. But if you feel like you need to have that card slab, send it in and get a slab. You know, I mean, um, grading is is helpful in, in these kinds of ways. And plus, the upside to grading, regardless of the scarcity of the card, is just it's protected. That investment mm -hmm. is protected. So if something should happen to you, uh, somebody can sell that card and make a profit or make some money out of it, you know, there's a guarantee that that will happen because it's been slabbed, it's been authenticated. Mm -hmm. So in those situations, it really helps. I don't know if you uh, caught a blog post I wrote some years back about um, uh, 98 Flare Showcase Masterpieces, the one of ones. And there, uh, there was like the, they ran out of the, the ones for the, let's see, they were doing the Legacy collection to 100s and they ran out of the sheet with the blue print so they used some of the masterpiece purple print to print for the remainder of the legacy collections so you've got a couple of the legacies that have some of the purple print and some of the blueprint on them in the same card whatever the case is that there was another video on that blog post i grabbed and I embedded it um the guy talks about his collection from basketball and they're they're all masterpieces from that showcase series and it was like jordan and kobe and all these other guys and he had them all slabbed, but he had them all authenticated because just to just to have them slabbed authentic, 
to him was more important than having them graded because they're one of ones, you know, doesn't really matter the grade. It's just getting them authenticated. So I think grading authentication with high end stuff is, is, is there's merit there and there's, you know, benefit there. But, you know, when it comes down to your own personal collection, if you want to have something slabbed just for your own sake of just feeling comfortable with what it is and to minimize any additional condition flaws that could happen to say a blue bordered Mike Trout card from 2010 tops per day view. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, man, have it slabbed, you know? <laughs> All right. I'm going to do it. <laughs> it's a long answer to that, right? <laughs> you heard it here first. You're right. You're right. Right. I will, I will get it back in uh six to 12 months. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that it's, they're, they're pretty busy, but they're, they're usually on top of their game over there at PSA. Yeah. So, uh, moving on, uh, let's talk about modern low serial numbered cards. There are just infinite you know varieties we can choose from from the different rainbows i mean tops and bowman they do the different sizes the minis bowman's more like that that thing they'll do like bowman mini rookie whatever and then you've got all the different parallels and then the base standard two and a half by three and a half all the different parallels it's kind of exhausting okay um let's talk about their place in the hobby and why they aren't significant okay so this is an interesting conversation because the super fractor is a one of one and it's a significant you know, those are significant cards. They're just great design. You got this, you know, this just a really cool pattern thing happening mm-hmm. on those cards. Just they're beautiful. Doesn't matter the player. But if you get a Hall of Famer post career, let's say, you know, the guy's retired, not yet a Hall of Famer, or he could be a Hall of Famer, and it's, you know, cards serial number to fifty, uh, from let's say an unlicensed brand like a Leaf or a Panini, and um, or something real obscure like Hits memorabilia. Um, and you you get this card, you know, if you send it in to have it graded a 10, then it's number to 50. Does that impact, you know, this kind of goes back to our former point, like, does that have impact on resale value or does it even matter because there's so many versions of the card? It's not a rookie card, you know, mm-hmm. uh, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think the numbering, like low numbering or quote unquote low numbering, I guess, in modern products has gotten a little out of hand and I, I feel bad when people rip modern products and they get you know a, a card that's numbered to like 25 or something and they they think they potentially might have a, a big card on their hands mm-hmm. but really most of the time you don't and yeah. I you know I've, I've gotten like hits in boxes of hobby stuff where it's a jersey card and it's numbered to 99 and like the fact that it's numbered to 99 doesn't even really add anything to the card um yeah and then who's the player (laughs) yeah exactly like (laughs) maybe it's if it's not like a superstar type player i'm talking like a top five kind of guy totally it really doesn't matter right um and you know i i buy stuff at target and walmart every once in a while and i'll get these number to 50 number to 99 number to 25 and it's it's yeah it doesn't really mean much to me i see it more of like a it's like a parallel i guess yeah, I don't really see it as a rare kind of thing to have in my collection, but yeah, it's mean, so it's... ubiquitous. I mean, they're just sort of, they're always out there. Yeah, I guess it's potentially like a lack of creativity in a way. But the thing that that is hard for me as a collector in the modern era is, you know, um, being excited about that stuff because there's so much of it: the green, the purple, the orange, the red, you know, the gold. Uh, the blue or the base, the refractor. I mean, there's, it's just, it's a lot. And so 
even if you're after one guy, you could be chasing up to like 30 cards between like the base size and the mini and like the plates and, you know, and so it's, 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 uh, it didn't used to always be like this. I, I remember there was a time years and years and years ago where if you pulled an insert, you always knew it was of a star player, like mm-hmm. pulling an insert was like, Oh my gosh, you know, it's the hot rookie this year or this, is the hot rookie class, but it was like 10 cards in the set. And it's not, you know, it's not a hundred cards, it's 10 cards. And each one is like insertion ratio is kind of quite a bit. It's like one in 16, one in 24, one in 36, you know, or one in 360 even. And so at those times, you always knew that what you pulled was a like a solid, oh my, like awesome, awesome piece. So now it's kind of, it's really watered down to the point where like, it's kind of a bummer that you pull a Jersey card and you're like, great, I hope to get a dollar for this, you know? you know like the shipping cost is going to cost more than what this card's worth like that's the kind of like discouragement i think a lot of us have to we we face mm-hmm. i mean look variety is great it's a spice of life but i also feel like there's you know there's also a tipping point there like I, at some point variety becomes maybe too much and debil- debilitating like choice is debilitating after a certain point like three options is nice 30 options is not nice you know like it's yes. it's too much and so uh, if I can chase, if I can see the end of the line out of the gate, I say, well, like three cards, I could probably do that. Six cards, I could probably knock that out. 60 cards, I don't really want to bother. I'll just wait until another release. So, like, actually, that, that company, that business lost me as a customer because of disinterest because it's just mm-hmm. too much. You ever had that? Yo, yeah. I mean, back when I was a, a player collector of a modern guy, um, he started to be featured in a lot of newer products and at first i thought it was cool but then you start dealing with these things you're talking about these endless parallels endless cards that are numbered to this and that yeah and it's i mean if you're looking for like a completion sort of aspect to your collection which i think most people are um it becomes really onerous and kind of frustrating and annoying sometimes yeah especially when you're sort of dealing with limited funds from time to time um it's, I don't know. I don't think it's a great part of the hobby. I do like, um, I'm thinking of a product. This is like a reverse trivia for you, I guess. Okay. Uh, I think it was 2002 triple crown. They did like the cool, like home run parallel. Yeah. And like the triple parallel and the double parallel. That was kind of cool because that made the, the number, the serial numbers actually mean something. Sure. Um, so like I remember I, I got the 2002 Triple Crown Nomar Garcia Para home run, which he only hit four home runs that year. <laughs> so and the card four. was to four, <laughs> which made it an extremely rare, highly sought after card. You had um, one. I had one. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. So yeah, that's. I guess those are my thoughts on that. It's it's become pretty outrageous and it's, it's kind of meaningless now. Well, also too, and you know, is it the modern era? If you pull a, uh, you know, let's say a Hall of Famer or, or gonna be a Hall of Famer or like awesome player, superstar that's not a Hall of Famer, and say the card's numbered to fifty, I mean, does it really matter? Because yeah. there's so much of that stuff. There's like, dude, that's just one card from one release, one mm-hmm. parallel run of like hundreds and hundreds over the last like five years of that player and so it almost is like you know modern card number to 50 is not that big a deal you know a modern nope. card number to 25 is just not that big a deal because there's just another 10 or 20 of them in the pipeline in the next three months you know and so it's uh 
it's kind of interesting to think about how it impacts your desirability of a product. Yeah, and that's what I tend to stay away from the really high end stuff, the the triple threads and, um, gosh, I know like they, they don't make Tops Tribute anymore, but those kind of products, you know, sure. where it's several hundred dollars for a box and or like sixty bucks a know, pack or whatever. Yeah, and they they just keep going back to the well. They'll have Ty Cobb, they'll have Mickey Mantle, they'll right. have Babe Ruth, you know, yep. um, who are great. Those are awesome guys to have on a card. Totally. But it's like, why would I pay that much money to get a Ty Cobb parallel number to ten? when his face has been on cards for the past probably like 20 years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they put him in a lot of product. Nothing. Yeah. yeah. Part of me feels like they should do away with sale numbers altogether. <laughs> yeah, go back to just like you know. insert ratios and... Um, I mean, I, I guess I don't have like a clear solution, but... There are, I mean, these are hard conversations to have and figure out. Like, I don't know if there are any solutions to this kind of thing. I just know that the the market is saturated with, you know, low numbered stuff. It's almost like every time you open a pack, you get something low numbered. Back in the day, it was like, oh my gosh, you'd open up cases and not find something that's still numbered to, you know, 10,000. You know, Mm -hmm. now it's like you open a pack and you're almost certain you're going to get something numbered to 99, you know, and so it's, it's, uh, it's kind of lost some of that luster. Yeah, well, like the last podcast we talked about, I think I bought a a, a box, a, a retail box from Target of Topps Chrome. Yeah. Or no, Topps Update, Topps Update a few weeks ago. Right. And my, my quote-unquote hit was a Yohan Moncada number to like 50. Yeah. So you, you can imagine my excitement. <laughs> so excited. Well, that brings us to the next point, which is, uh, you know, personal value versus actual value, right? Like we place value on our own collections. And we think that, you know, what would you pay for something in your own collection, like the trout card? You might pay more because of sentimental value. Now, let's say you take that number and put it up on auction and you use that number as your selling point. Not everybody's going to agree with you. Granted, trout's sort of, you know, not a good example because he's so good and he's so sellable, so liquid. But let's say it's like, you know, let's pull something out of my collection. Let's say it's a Steven Strasberg card. It's, you know, mildly difficult to find. Um, And... And I put it up on auction for a thousand dollars because mm-hmm. I like the card and it's serial number to a hundred and I just think it's it's a really, really cool card. But the market will just laugh at me because the card's not actually worth a thousand bucks. You know, you might list it and it might go for six dollars, you know, but but you know, it's important to me because I remember X, Y, and Z and then I have the sentimental value. I mean, you can fill in the blank with a card, just pick a card at random that is mm-hmm. important to you and then take what you think it's worth and to you and not everybody's going to agree with that price point i mean this is selling 101 right like you don't list stuff for what you think it's worth you list stuff for what the market's willing to bear either at a reasonable buy it now or just basically the best thing you can do is list it at 99 cent auction style and let it ride and the market will decide you know where it's going to go and that's honestly the most productive and efficient way to list items on ebay yes yeah, if you actually want to sell it and make money, <laughs> right? Or just let it sit there. Um, yeah. So, and I, I've I've dealt with a few friends and family over the years that have discovered, you know, cards that have been stashed away in a closet or, you know, from their childhood or whatever it is. Sure. I'll say, yeah, you know, that card is worth, you know, such and such, and they'll say, what? I remember, I remember buying this card when I was a kid, and, and you know, if if I'm going to sell it, I want at least this much money, and it's like. <laughs> Well, if like, why are you selling it? If it means Times that much, change, to you, man. <laughs> like sentimentally, like, is is fifty bucks really gonna like impact your financial situation? Like, it's it's not. So just hold on to it. Well, I mean, 
I've, you know, I've seen guys present me with binders of 90 Don Russ. Oh, yes. They're like, yeah, 500 bucks. And I was like, do you, you want to pay me 500 bucks to take this <laughs> off your hands? I'll take it's it, 500 set, bucks. Though. It's the complete set. I'll, I'll accept your offer of $500 to take this binder off of your hands. But, no, I mean, I, it's kind of like, you know, it never. it's the never-ending story, right? It's like you tell the people, yeah, I mean, they printed the heck out of these things, and they're unfortunately the binder itself is probably worth more than the contents within the binder. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are like heartbroken. I'm like, sorry, I don't think you invested that much money in this out of the game yeah. anyway. It's not that big a deal. Um, but, you know, personally, when you, when you go to sell something, you have to kind of remove emotion from it and look at it from a logical perspective. I mean, that's really the only way to look at a lot of things in life is to remove emotion from it in your decision-making process. You know, you have to look at these things completely objectively and logically um, in order to produce some, like, like acceptable result, right, for both parties. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it's like, okay, I paid 10 bucks for it. I might list it for 12 still because my time is worth money, but I wouldn't list it for 50 you know, because, yeah, I paid 10 bucks for it, but... I want to make a huge profit on this, let's just say, so I'm listening for 50. That's just being irresponsible because you're wasting your time. Now, if you wanted to list it for something like 12 bucks, maybe a little bit more than what you paid for it because, like I said, your time's valuable. I get that. Um, Fine. Just be realistic about it. Be realistic about your expectations is where I'm trying to go with this. Yeah, and that's why I, I enjoy going to shows so much because for the most part, and there, there are exceptions to this rule, but for the most part, there are sellers there that are realistic, they're professional, they're aggressive, they're trying to sell. Yeah. And whenever I go to shows, I have friends ask me, like, why can't you can just go on eBay and buy this stuff? But And yeah, I can. They're right. But eBay and the internet in general is full of these delusional sellers that have these crazy asking prices where I can go to a show and I know these people are very motivated to sell. And... If we don't come to a price at the end of the day, then oh well. But I know I have a much better chance with that type of seller than I do with uh, a, a somewhat typical eBay seller. Yeah, plus you get to, well, I mean, you get to see the card in person too. And so you can like yeah, see like condition awesome. flaws and edges and corners and surface. And you know, like you can really investigate and like a, like take a look at a real close look at this, this card. And uh, that, that helps, you know, your decision making. Online, unfortunately, it's just harder to do that unless you have really nice, clean scans. And then, unfortunately, you know, by design, eBay is not set up for everybody to submit clean scans. Uh, You know, so you're going to have really hideous scans and blurry scans and scans that are sideways and upside down and whatever else. But in real life, when you see the card in person, it's it's nice. I mean, you get to really take a look at this thing um and and this make a decision a very educated guess on whether or not you want to you know buy something you know, like you don't have to worry about it coming in it's like, oh it's creased you know mm-hmm. <laughs> oh it's not the red refractor that i thought i was going to get you know and so um that's helpful it is yeah definitely and uh, i have i mean i have cards set aside in my collection that i know have little to no value to anybody except for me sure and I, and I i'm never going to try and move totally. them i'm never going to try and like trade them they're just in my collection because for, you know, for a specific sentimental reason. Right. I have a lot uh, of those myself, too. And I still and buy I, them to this day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I still buy them. Um, maybe I overpay for them sometimes. But uh, it's. I think you just have to make that delineation in your collection. Like, these are cards that have 
actual value. And these are cards that don't really have any value except to me personally. Right. And that's expected. Mm -hmm. Just know that you're never going to get your value online with or, or in person of the stuff that you bought that's sentimental to you and just accept that those are what we call sunk costs. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, we don't collect all of us for profits all the time. We collect sometimes just because we like the card. End of story. Mm -hmm. You know, and so anyway, I just want to touch on that. Let's uh, move on to this next piece here. You know, we discussed this earlier just to, just a touch, but I want to dig right into it here. PWCC listed a block of uh, 13 different 1996 Select Certified Mirror Golds. And in that lot was the entire pastime power run less the Kenny Griffey Jr., which means the Frank Thomas was in there, and four cards from the base run. And so, uh, I mean, really solid, incredible prices on these cards. I didn't th expect the Chanho Park to close at over $1,800. International market, man. I know. That's I, the I don't thing. Know Every time. Yeah. <laughs> Every there's time. No way. I mean, just based off of his American career, there's no way that that price makes sense. So right. it's got to be the – and he, he's a significant player for – for Korean Americans and oh, absolutely for 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 Koreans. So, absolutely, yes, yeah, still crazy crazy price. Um, I know we were both sort of looking at the move on, and we didn't uh, make a move at it. But right, I wasn't planning on bidding on that card, but I, I was watching all of them. And yeah, Mo and Javi Lopez both closed under a hundred dollars. I was surprised to see the Hideo Nomo pastime power close just over four hundred when his. His standard card in the set, the base card in the set, the mirror gold, closed uh, about a month ago for over 900. Mm. So I thought that the pastime power would perform a little bit better. The Mike Piazza pastime power closed in the 900 block. So mm. I was like, gosh, it's, it's these prices are so high. And I don't know when I'll see these again. They're they're extremely rare. Uh, but it was nice to see the uh, the the Thomas pastime power because I'd always wanted to see what that card looked like in any format. Uh, so it was cool to kind of watch those. So yeah, thirteen of these surfaced from PWCC. Who knows when we'll see some of these cards again? I, I got to see the uh, the Tony Gwynn again. I seen that, I've seen that one before. Cal Ripken. Uh, they sold both of the Ripkins in the set on that run. Um, just really cool to watch. Bernie Williams was in that lot as well. Uh, I really like the pastime power stuff at the end of the set. I think it's just those are cool looking cards. Bernie but, went for less than a hundred, right? No, Bernie closed it over a hundred. Over, okay. Yeah, I'm actually pulling Bernie's... up the uh, the blog post now. If you're on, if you're you know listening and you're not on the site, go to radicards.com and just type in Mirror Gold, and you can see. This will come up as as and then search query, and you can see these uh, images and the price points. The Thomas closed at over four thousand, which is right where I expected it to close. Um, yeah, Greg Maddox pastime was six sixty seven. Albert Bell at one twenty nine, which I thought was low. Wow. Um, let's see here. Yeah, yeah. So Chipper Jones was twelve fifty six. Ooh. Yeah, pretty steep. Do you, do you know the history of the Griffey? Is that well? Is, I, is that sold like? within the past couple of years or I've has it never, surfaced recently? I haven't, I've never seen the Griffey at auction. I, I've seen a scan of the Griffey, but I've never seen it listed for sale. Hmm. Um, but yeah, that's it's a monster of a card. Serious, serious uh, spending on that one. Yeah, the, the, the Ripken, uh, card number 53, sold for 2600 So 
Oh yeah, the Bernie Williams is at one fifty. So he was one fifty. He okay. was low, but really cool to watch these. I mean, these are really just awesome cards. Yeah, definitely go to uh, radicards.com if you're not already there, and search Mirror Gold and check this article out. I've got the images there and price points, bids, number of bids. I mean, it's typical for how I you know content the content I publish for for list of auctions and stuff like that. So take a look. It's really cool stuff. Yeah. I really dig that a lot. And it was fun to watch those auctions. It was kind of exciting to see kind of them all close. Yeah. This happens every once in a while where either a, uh, a private seller will just sell off their significant collection. Yeah. Or um, a more public-facing uh, eBay seller like PWCC will buy a collection and then kind of piece it out like this. And right. I think I remember like the stand and deliver. Remember that? Where oh, was, yeah. It was framed and it was so uncut, amazing. and then they yep. they cut it and they sold it off individually. That was pretty significant. Yeah, but uh, that, so those were the red letters, really elusive red letter letter versions, and their their print run is to twenty five. I personally would have left the entire frame intact. Yeah, it's so much cooler. Gosh, you know how rare it is to find a fully <laughs> intact frame with those cards in them. I mean, I granted the gentleman who cracked out all the cards listed the Thomas, and I was the buyer, and I was able to get the red lettered Thomas into my collection back then. That was some years back now, but I was able to get that car because of that. But still, if I had that framed item, knowing the scarcity of that framed item, I would have just kept it intact and enjoyed it, put it in my office or something. Such a rare, rare find. Yeah. Yeah, but that's a significant one. Super. These uh, select certified mirror golds, that was a pretty fun um, string of auctions to watch. Yeah. There have been many. I mean, there there, there have been a lot of these, this kind of thing. And it's fun to watch... Yeah, I've been a fan of PWCC for a long time, and and they they always list such cool, cool pieces. And I I'm I'm a frequent buyer. I'm a return customer. Same with Propstein. Um, it's just fun to kind of see where, what 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 surfaces, you know, like like these old like super rare boutique '90s inserts. So I just wanted to touch on that because that's to me it was fun to watch, and I'm sure other people paid attention to those. I know I've been kind of back and forth with a gentleman on uh, one of the forums who was in- intrigued as well by the by the lots. So cool stuff. Uh, 1996 Select Certified Mirror Golds listed by PWCC and they sold. Uh, they're archived on radicards.com. So go check those listings out just to like have a look at what these cards look like. Just do yourself a favor and just to, just to see what they look like because who knows when we'll see some of these cards again. I don't know when I'll see the Chan Ho Park ever again. So... Anyway, moving on, uh, let's talk about the uh, Rookie of the Year Awards. Uh, Some really cool stuff. You know, my predictions. We had predictions a couple of podcasts back, and Mm -hmm. I was spot on with my predictions. (laughs) (laughs) AL Rookie of the Year, of course, Otani. I mean, I I think it would be irresponsible to pick anybody else, honestly. Yeah, if you look at the breakdown of the the Writers Association, their voting, I think like 27 of them had Otani in first place. Um, so it was pretty, pretty heavily marked in his favor. Yeah. I mean, I can't think, like I said, I can't think of anybody else that I would put in there. And honestly, I think it'd be insulting if I picked anybody else besides (laughs) Otani. Well, Uh, so I hope there's no Yankees fans listening, but, um, so Miguel Andujar and Glaber Torres were the sort of the other two guys that could have potentially taken that rookie of the year. Oh yeah. And, um, they had great seasons. Don't want to take any way, anything away from him, but what Otani did was just so incredible. Yeah. And the fact that he was hurt for a fairly significant portion of the year, and yeah. he still put up the offensive numbers that he did. Totally. While pitching, I mean, 
it was just incredible. And I guess if you are a Yankees fan that's listening, don't be upset because you lost the rookie of the year. But now on your team, you have the guy that finished second place for rookie of the year, and you have the guy that finished third place for rookie of the year. So that should make you feel pretty good about your team going forward. There you go. Not to mention that, like, like – CV of accolades you have under your belt for the Yankees. Yes. I mean, there's no sense in getting upset ever yeah, if don't you're get a Yankee upset, fan. Yankees fans. <laughs> You'll be fine. <laughs> it's going to be okay. Yeah. Um, and then NL, rookie of the year, uh, Ronald Acuna Jr., which I expected as well just because of like his performance and his. I mean, I look at also like not just on field, I also look at like what's happening in the hobby. Like, who's buying what right now? Like, what's really popular? Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if I, I can't really like equate hobby interest to like its influence on who's going to be selected rookie of the year but because i see so much activity on certain players and then i go and like look at their stats and i like kind of see like what kind of performance they've you know produced then kind of get a feel for this gentleman's personality and like how good they are at playing baseball and so i i selected this guy initially because i think he's just like fun to watch he's got a great personality and um he he's 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 very talented so I'm glad that uh, to see both of these guys get the the the, uh, the award this year. It's it's uh, you know I think that the Braves fans are are probably pretty excited right now too, knowing that their guy got uh, ROI. Thoughts, oh, yeah. comments, concerns, questions. Nope. And then you know the Braves fans also like Yankees fans. They had two guys in the running for Rookie of the Year with Ozzy Albies right. and Acuna. So those two teams going forward are looking real good. We're sort of going back to like the the mid to late '90s with the powerhouses in new york and atlanta so and kind of led by these by these young guys so yeah next year is going to be really fun for those two teams gosh yeah it's gonna be interesting to watch kind of see how this unfolds i i honestly hope that uh otani does have more productive seasons and he he, he remains healthy to some degree to allow him to do that you know that he's a two talent player it, it makes things a lot easier i think on him uh, in terms of how to use the guy. Um, but, yeah, so cool stuff. Otani and Okuna are the two rookie of the years this year, 2018. Uh, Ryan, you want to talk about the MVPs this year? Yeah, so real quick, I mean, everyone's talking about this. It's all it's It's been covered, but um, Mookie Betts, Christian Yelich, I don't really think there's a debate against either of these two guys. They had phenomenal seasons. Yeah. Mookie Betts specifically – he had his, I think his first, firstborn. He has an MVP champion or <laughs> MVP award and a World Series championship, and I think a Silver Slugger on top of that. So, fantastic year for him, um, and he's still relatively young. Uh, I mean, the Red Sox again are just an incredible team. They really are. Looking into the future, they 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 have some amazing homegrown talent and. Um, Mookie Betts was, and and this is coming from a very biased Angels fan who thinks that Mike Trout should get every accolade possible. <laughs> so I think that Mookie Betts, I was totally for Mookie Betts. I mean, his his year was amazing, and I'm I'm disappointed in myself for sleeping on his um his rookie card. It was, it's like 2014 tops traded. I think we're all disappointed in, in that, but we're we're, yeah. we're we're more disappointed that we didn't do anything in 2011 tops update. Oh yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yep that's yeah i guess the mike truck stuff was well not just that 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 set is full of superstars yeah full of it yeah. like full 
And so it's it's just now looking back, it's like, gosh, hindsight, man, is always twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, that's why the update stuff is always intriguing to me because I I tend to buy a little bit of it and I you keep buy a lot of it cards. now. <laughs> yeah, I just keep all the rookie cards. I'm like, I don't know who any of these people are, but I mean, they could be the next uh, fill in the blank. You know, right. I mean, you have to kind of wait. I mean, it's been what seven years since 2011. So you have to kind of wait five to seven years for these, some of these guys to blossom. JT, JD Martinez yeah. is in the 2010 Bowman Chrome set. Yeah. It took a while for JD to kind of make his name. Um, yeah. The 2011, 2010 stuff is really like chock full of superstars. Mm-hmm. But like you said, it took a while for us to realize like, Oh my God, those products are just incredible. They're incredible from, I mean, from what kind of players came out of those products. It's just, it's so um, concentrated with talent, you know, I, 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 it's like almost every, every year goes by. There's another guy who's coming up that was in that set and has a hope diamond parallel. That's like a thousand dollars. Yeah. You know? And so it's, it's, it's really cool to kind of watch that over the years. Uh, NL, NL MVP, Christian Yelich, 2010. Yeah. He's in 2010 Bowman Chrome prospects. He's got autos in there that are selling really well right now. Yeah, and he's he's in the old Marlins uniform, which I think is kind of cool. That is pretty cool. <clears throat> uh, that so those guys that, that certainly deserve their their uh, awards. There. Um, did you want to talk about the Cy Young Award recipients this year? Yeah, Blake Snell and Jacob Degrom. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, that's that's correct. I don't think there was any serious competition there. I'm, I'm trying to think back. I know Chris Sale put up some amazing numbers. Like always. He, he was also dealing with some injuries. He had missed some innings. and um, So I think at the end of it, his his inning count was, was fairly low. Mm. Um, whereas Jacob deGrom, his stats are pretty crazy because he only had like 10 wins. I think he went like 10 and 10 on the season. Um, but that's because he was playing on such a poor team in, in the Mets. They just couldn't back him up ever. And, but he still, I mean, put up, he put together an amazing season. Um, yeah. I, it, Scherzer came right behind him. Scherzer. Uh, for there you for go. the National League Cy Young. And uh, for the American League Cy Young, Verlander came right behind Snell. I mean, these aren't, this isn't surprising, right? Like, Snell, Snell, and and Degrom might be household names at some point. You know, I know Verlander and Scherzer are already. Um, Snell, I think, is relatively new, um, but he's certainly dominant. I mean, he's just a he's a great player, mm-hmm. great pitcher. Yeah, that's a really fun team down in Tampa. Um, and Blake Snell's is got to be like the cornerstone going forward. So I think he, he deserves it. And I, I hope that sort of like supercharges that team because they play in all these with against all these incredible teams Yeah. in the AL East. They play against the Yankees and the Red Sox. I mean, it's it's got to be so tough to go out there and play like the majority of your games against those teams. But if you have someone like Blake Snell on your on your side who you can throw out there, you know, 20 times a, a season, um, that's got to make you feel good. Really been a, it was an awesome season. It just was a lot of fun. Uh, so we had a good time in 2018. Uh, moving on here, uh, let's talk about. Speaking of Okuna, 
his superfractor, 2018 Topps Chrome Superfractor Auto, mm-hmm. was pulled and listed. And it garnered 71 bids and it closed at 13,600. I actually blogged about this. Again, go to radicars.com, uh, type in Ronald Kuna, or if, if it's not still on the front page anyway. Um, and you can you can have a look at this auction and this particular card. Really interesting stuff. Now, check this out. This here's the here's the curveball, right? Is that the card was then relisted that same day, less than 24 hours later. Like that's that evening. It was relisted. And within like less than 24 hour span, it already reached ten ten thousand dollars And the card right now is is getting close to its original valuation and it has days and days to go. So it's going to be interesting because there's a comp now. There's a $13,000 comp on this card now. So you can actually see kind of where to expect it to go. Now, it's kind of breaks my heart when something gets relisted because it's like I had just published that blog post and I saw it relisted. I was like, dang. you know, It was listed at the perfect time because it was listed like three or four days before the Rookie of the Year awards were announced, like the actual selection, the selection, the two guys. Yeah, great timing. Yeah, and, and then he was nominated to get his award, and then it closed a couple of days later. So it, it, it brought a lot of traction to this particular uh, uh, auction, which I think helped garner its 13000 final price tag. Yeah, uh, yeah. it was listed on Thursday, uh, November 7th. On Monday, 11-12, Ronald Acuna is selected as the 2018 National League Rookie of the Year. And on Thursday, eleven fourteen, the superfractor listing ends, and it closed at like I said, thirteen thousand six hundred. So it's really interesting to see that that was like I don't know if it was an intended strategy, but it was really cool to kind of watch that happen with seventy one bids. That's, that's a lot of activity. So I want to touch on that. I, thought, I just thought it was weird that it was relisted within you know less than twelve hours. Like it just let's put it let's put it right back up. So <laughs> yeah, I think still I, trying to ride the uh, the rookie of the year wave, I guess. I don't know. I mean. You gotta remember, like something's usually relisted when uh, a buyer, you know, contacts seller and says, "I I can't pay or I'm I'm retracting my bid." I mean, these are really highly un- undesirable situations, but they do happen, and so I, I can't imagine any other scenario which would or 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 this was shilled, but I, I don't know really what's happening. It's just interesting to watch it the second time and kind of see where it goes. So, yep. cool stuff. Do you have any comments on that? Yeah. So the. The listeners can go find this um, listing and, and see the the scans for themselves. And I had commented on the original posting um, with you that because this is a redemption card, it came back from Tops with their weird sticker deal, <laughs> which I've had some redemption cards in the past. I've never really been a fan of this where they put the sticker over the top loader or they have some sort of other like unique way of packaging the card. Yeah, the sticker should go inside the top loader. You yeah, know? <laughs> I just. But then, like uh, one parts of me, th- one one side of me thinks, just get rid of it, take it out, package it, and store it how you want to do it. Then the other part of me thinks, well, I'm just not going to touch it. I'm just going to leave it exactly how yeah. it came from Tops. So. I don't know. It's tricky. I wish the tops wouldn't wouldn't put us in that situation. Yeah. So as it is a, what it is. I'm a purist. So like I would leave it in this thing. I'm gonna leave it intact and be completely happy with it in a top loader. As a user of top loaders myself, in a very like abundant, like significant way, um, I'm a huge fan of the storing cards in this way. I just think that the sticker on top is is 
is a little invasive. The sticker's awful. It's covering like half of his head. I know. I mean, so it's like if the sticker was literally half that size and just like peeked over the top there, I'd be f- totally fine with it. It's yeah. a it's a little invasive for what it is, but whatever. I mean, you can still enjoy the card and and you know, and be okay with the fact that you spent five figures on this thing. But uh, it's cool. I mean, it's on card signature, which I, I I totally respect. I think super fractors should always be on card, but that's just my own opinion. Uh, so anyway, I just want to touch on that because it's kind of cool to see the a, a significant card as it was sold at almost the perfect time and then being relisted within that day, really, that same day. Um, not even in, not even 24 hours later, it was like that evening. You know, it was like really cool to watch that. So I just want to touch on that. But let's move on. Now, Ryan, we had kind of talked about this before we were recording, is that, uh, you know, some of the players who kind of come into the league and they fizzle or they just and they don't they don't even really get a chance to just kind of come up and then a game or two and then they're gone that's the end of it so i want to talk about forgotten player profile of freddie sandoval now let's talk about this guy for general for, for a little bit i'm going to talk about it a little bit and then ryan's going to talk about some history with this guy too mm-hmm. um freddie came up with the california angels he played from 08 to 09 and he, he logged exactly 11 games in those two years. He had 17 at-bats. He had three hits, zero home runs, and a batting average of 176 wow. career. <laughs> Just not good. No RBIs. Never got to third base. Never stole a base. He had a, he had a bases on balls. He had one. I mean, the guy really didn't really... I mean, nothing really happened with this gentleman. He was... He was uh, debuted on September 8th, 2008, at the age of 26. And his last game was October 4th, 2009, just just over a, a year later. So he really only played one year, right? But he's logged mm-hmm. for two years because he played in two separate seasons. So this is like a guy that maybe was discussed in circles for a minute back in, you know, uh, 2008 with the Angels. But we never, I mean, he, he fell out of relevance. He kind of went obscurity almost immediately. So that to me is, in a way, it's kind of heartbreaking, but it's almost typical in a lot of ways. There are a ton of guys like this. Mm-hmm. So, Ryan, you want to talk about some more of his stuff that's off the field? Yeah. So, <clears throat> Freddie Sandoval uh, is now a professional coach, and he has a consulting business that he runs. Um, so it's, it's pretty interesting how some players pivot from a professional sports, uh, environment into something completely different. Yeah. And I'm sure some of his coaching and consulting, he, he picked up from, you know, some of his own coaches when he was coming up in the minors. Um, but it really doesn't have a whole lot to do with baseball. And I know that Freddie Sandoval was probably very promising at one point, but, um, at least according to some things I've read, he was nagged by injuries a lot, which is sort of a common storyline. Sure. Uh, very unfortunate storyline, but um, it happens when you're playing sports. So uh, this is like a sort of a podcast on its own, potentially, like looking at players that never really made it and then completely went in a different direction um, career-wise. Mm-hmm. Um, that's got to be hard. You know, you put your heart and soul into something probably since you were like 16, maybe younger. And then it just doesn't work out. And 
guys like Freddie Sandoval, you know, they didn't really even have a chance to make like the serious money that baseball and other sports have to offer. Well, I mean, he did his cumulative earnings, at least according to baseballreference.com, were 814,000. Of course, okay. the two years. So that to me is significant, but it's nowhere yeah. near what like guys are getting paid like the this, you know, gigantic salaries like the nine-figure yeah. Albert Pujols salaries, right? But that comes with performance. I mean, you pay for talent you know it's it's you know in that batman movie the the modern one with Heath ledger playing joker the the line he says is you know if if you're good at something never do it for free so you have to pay everybody in baseball some amount of money because they're doing it but the people that are performing at such a high level they're getting paid serious premiums okay Mm -hmm. so he made maybe before taxes obviously eight hundred fourteen thousand. And, you know, it's the hope that, you, you know, he turned that into something more than 814000 And so, um, yeah, it's it's probably heartbreaking to think that you spent all this time playing baseball and getting in the majors and then you didn't even get a shot at being much because there's no there's no patience for waiting for you to be good. Um, mm-hmm. But it's nice to know he took those talents and did something else with them. A lot of guys that they're like baseball is the only thing I'm good at, and then, well, they're not good enough at it. So what are you going to do now? You know? Yeah, like a lot of guys, they pivot into something that's related. They'll, they'll teach at the high school level, or coach at the high school level, coach at the college level. Yeah. Or they'll be like in broadcasting or something. Right. But it's, it's always interesting to see when someone just completely does like a 180 and goes in a different direction. Admirable, I'm sure though. You, I'm sure if you met Freddie Sandoval at his workplace or like in a professional setting, you would never guess that he was a, at one time a promising young major league baseball player. Yeah. Um, but I mean, what's cool about the situation is he's like applying this stuff to something else. Yeah. It's totally cool. You know, I, I kind of accept your losses and move on, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. it's breakups are hard, uh, <laughs> but it's, it's, uh, it's kind of cool. I so I wanted to touch on that. Yeah. Well, so you can find him in products from 2007 to 2009. I think that's about right. Uh, sadly, we lost a, a comic book uh, icon. Uh, Mr. Stan Lee passed away recently at the age of 95. He's the founder of so many iconic comic book characters. Uh, and I grew up collecting vintage Amazing Spider-Man. I still pick up a, a book here and there when I'm at a con or something, you know, chip away at the 60s and 70s stuff. But... Um, I actually was at a con in LA where he was a keynote speaker. So I was in the same room as him at one point, which I thought was cool. Wow. But, uh, yeah, he's, you know, he's really pivotal. I mean, he's one of the guys that created the legends that we've all come to know as the superheroes, right? Like, um, he's, he's credited for a lot of that stuff. So I'm, I, I was sad about the news. Um, and, and, but he's always going to be, he's had, he's forever in the ethos of comic comic books and just just general mm-hmm. art i just think it's so cool so uh do you remember him at all uh, oh yeah absolutely and uh, i mean the sports card hobby and the comic book like entire universe <laughs> is so closely related yeah and i don't really know a whole lot about collecting comic books um but i i certainly respect it um and whenever I'm at a, a show where there's comics being displayed, I I always sneak a peek just because I'm curious. So I see what sort of effect that Stanley had on on people, and 
whether if it's just casual people that are going to see these incredible movies that are being made out of stories, um, or if it's the more hardcore fans that are, you know, investing in his comic books, it's it's a pretty in- incredible um, impression that he's made. And totally, a good chunk of the Marvel universe was created by Stanley. Okay, so um, he spent so many years in comic books that. And the, the, he, he created some of the most iconic and most collected characters um, in, in all of comic books. And I, I bring this up, I know as, as listeners, we're card collectors, but growing up and going to local card shops, they always had, most of them had sections for comic books. Like, we're so connected in that way that, you know, comic books and sports card collectors. When I grew up, it was always back and forth. It started out with comics, went to cards, went back to comics, went back to cards, and went back and forth for a number of years. You know, now I collect cards ardently, obviously, but um, when I go to a con, I'm like, well, I might look for an old Spider-Man book, you know, or pull up my old checklist and see which ones I still need. And it's still part of me. I don't have that same, my passion for comics is, 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 is different than my passion for cards, but the, the appreciation for that category is just the same. I, I still appreciate it. Um, so I just want to touch on that and sort of end on that because... Um, Although sad, I just wanted to kind of celebrate Stan Lee because he was such a an important icon to to people. Just to just mm-hmm. you know, he left his mark in the world, and I, I just really respect him for that. Yeah, so, and if a, a cool crossover between uh, sports cards and, and the comic world, I think in 2011, Alan Ginter, there's a nice um, sort of framed like mini auto that if if you're a fan of Stan Lee, listening. Go yeah. check that out. I think there's also like a, a framed mini memorabilia card, um, but he's got some stuff sort of scattered throughout the hobby. Um, check that out if you're interested. Yeah, 2011, he's in uh, Alan Ginter. Um, it's funny. I, I go online sometimes, check out like Amazing Fantasy number 15, First Prince of Spider-Man, and people have had them signed by Stan Lee. Wow. And like that's a really significant five-figure book and they're having it yeah that's, you know, it's having it signed by stanley interesting choice <laughs> yeah 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 it's like having a mickey mantle 51 bowman signed by Mickey, which i've seen i've seen 51 bowman signed by mickey mantle many times um but it's just uh it's cool so you have some stuff in ginter if you're interested out in 2011 alan ginter uh stanley he's available and there are different versions of the cards and things like that so Anyway, Ryan, that closes us out for this podcast. Do you have any final thoughts? I think we covered it. This was a great agenda. That was a nice agenda. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. Thank you. And if you have comments you want to share, hop on over to uh, radicards.com. Uh, leave us a comment. Uh, or if you're on YouTube and you want us to leave it on the YouTube as well, it's fine. Uh, we always appreciate them on the uh, the blog. So anyway uh thanks so much for tuning in to radicards podcast on radicards.com i'm your host patrick reno thank you again ryan for joining us and until next time enjoy collecting if you like this content please subscribe thank you enjoy collecting